I'm Dr. Phil Rosenfeld, Professor of Ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, and I'm also course co-director of the Angiogenesis Exudation and Degeneration Annual Meeting. New Retina Radio invited Dr. John Kitchens to moderate discussions from speakers who presented at this year's Angiogenesis Meeting. This is episode two of three. Make sure you listen to episode one if you want to hear about the latest data on treatments for geographic atrophy and pay attention to your podcast feed for forthcoming discussions. In this episode, Dr. Kitchens hears from Drs. Diana Doe and Carl Regillo, who summarized their presentations about pipeline therapies for wet age-related macular degeneration. After the break, they review how wet AMD therapy, a mainstay of retina practice for now over a decade, could be altered in the coming years. Hello, I'm John Kitchens, and today I'm going to be joined by Diana Doe and Carl Regillo. Uh, Diana Doe is a professor of ophthalmology and vice chair for clinical affairs at the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford University School of Medicine. Hello, Diana. How are you? Hi, John. It's always a pleasure to join you. And we also have someone who's very common to New Retina Radio. has been on, I think, three or four times now, actually, and that's Carl Regillo. And Carl is the chief of the retina service at the Wills Eye Hospital and Professor of Ophthalmology at Thomas Jefferson School of Medicine in Philadelphia. Carl, thanks for joining us again. Hello, John and Diana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So you all are both a part of angiogenesis. And, and just like our previous episode on angiogenesis coverage, we're going to hear from both of you about your presentations at this year's meeting. Then we'll take a break and we'll kind of discuss some of the larger implications of the data you presented uh, new data that was presented at the meeting and your thoughts on the future of, of retina and angiogenesis as a whole. So let's start with you, Dr. Doe. You presented some really interesting phase 1B data about the novel anti-VEGF antibody polymer, uh, KSI-301. Give us a little bit of an overview of the study, Diana. My pleasure. I had the privilege of sharing this new one-year data on KSI-301, which is a novel intravitreal antibody biopolymer conjugate that is precision engineered for increased durability and efficacy. The study investigators had a large phase 1B study conducted that included 121 treatment-naive patients with either wet AMD, diabetic macular edema, or retinal vein occlusion. And the purpose of this large study was to assess the safety, efficacy, and durability of KSI-301. Interestingly, the one-year data showed that two in every three patients treated with KSI-301 are on a six-month or greater treatment-free interval at year one after receiving only three loading doses. And I think that positive data is really exciting for a potential new office-based treatment. That's really amazing, Diana. Six-month intervals after three monthly loading doses. So, so what is it about this KSI-301 that's different from traditional um, antibodies or drugs that we're familiar with? I think it's the science. You know, KSI-301 is built on this novel antibody biopolymer conjugate platform. And the ABC technology means that we're using an antibody that's stably linked to this biopolymer, which is a branched polymer with a high molecular weight that is optically clear. 
When we stably link them together, we get this ABC platform. And it allows the drug to have an intravitreal delivery, a potential for deeper potency, improved bioavailability, rapid systemic clearance, and of course, increased durability. And that's what we're seeing in these clinical trial results. And Diana, is this a completely new technology that's not used elsewhere in medicine, or do we see this in other, uh, other entities in medicine? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. The biopolymers have been used in other fields of medicine, for example, in cardiac stents. A lot of them are lined with biopolymers as well. So it's a substance that is familiar to the body and biocompatible. Uh, and that's why the scientists at Kodiak uh, decided to use this platform. And I think what we've seen so far is very promising in terms of both safety, efficacy, and durability signals. Fascinating. So let's move back to this study. You said that there were patients who evaluated, evaluated in three different disease states. Can you tell us a little bit more about this in the context of a phase one study? Sure. I almost want to say that this isn't just a routine phase one study because it was such a large patient population. As I mentioned, 121 treatment naive eyes. You could almost consider this like a phase two study. So all of these were treatment naive and they met specific you know, enrollment criteria and they were then randomized uh, to treatment with KSI 301. They were followed monthly and they had disease specific retreatment criteria. Of course, at any time point, investigators could also retreat if they thought disease activity was present. And what we presented at the angiogenesis meeting was this new year one data, which did show that on average, two out of three patients could go a six-month treatment-free interval after receiving only three loading doses. That's really fantastic. Now, one of the big questions, especially coming to light here in the last year or two, is safety. Can you talk a little bit about safety of the KSI 301? Safety is paramount. And of course, we as uh, clinicians want to offer our patients the most safe and efficacious treatments if possible. So far to date, the safety profile of KSI 301 has been excellent. There have been no serious drug-related adverse events. Um, most of the adverse events reported in the study were consistent with profiles of intravitreal anti-VEGF injections, such as subconjunctival hemorrhage, a little ocular discomfort. Um, there were two instances of mild intraocular inflammation, but those resolved and neither were associated with vasculitis or retinal occlusion. So to date, I think the safety profile is very promising and excellent. Diana, this is Carl. I'm uh, eager to hear more about the data for specifically the wet AMD patients at year one. Carl, I'm happy to share with that uh, data. And as I mentioned, these were treatment naive patients. And at the end of year one, uh, patients who were treated with KSI 301 gained on average 5.7 letters achieving a visual acuity of around 2040, which is about 70 letters. And these benefits were achieved with a mean of only two injections per patient during the durability assessment phase of the study, which was a, a 10 month period. In total, the results showed that there was a mean of only five injections needed during the first year. And by the end of the first year, 
66% of patients were on a six month treatment free interval. So I think the results are promising and uh, we're excited that the phase three DAZZLE study has completed enrollment uh, because that will compare KSI 301 head to head with a Flibercept. You know, Diana, it's amazing that we're just getting the data from this phase one slash phase two study, and yet we already have a phase three that's completed enrollment. I think it was one of the fastest enrolling studies ever, but you mentioned DME and RVO data. Can you give us a top line summary about the, the what we saw with DME and RVO? The data was also very promising for both the treatment naive DME and RVO cohorts. Both groups had significant gains in vision. The DME eyes improved uh, 7.6 letters to a visual acuity of 2032, and the RVO eyes improved over 22 letters uh, to a visual acuity of better than uh, 20 over 32. And all of these benefits were seen with very few injections during the durability assessment phase of the study. For diabetic macular edema eyes, the average number of injections over the one-year period was four. And for retinal vein occlusion eyes, the average number of injections over the one-year period was 4.7. So we're saying four to five injections roughly for DME and RVO over an entire year. That's really fantastic. Yes, I think if this holds up in the pivotal trials, this could be a potential game changer um, because it would allow us to treat our patients in clinic uh, with fewer treatments, but yet still have that important VEGF suppression that's necessary. Talk to us a little bit about those pivotal trials. What, what are they and, and which ones are currently enrolling? As I mentioned, the wet AMD DAZZLE study has completed enrollment already. The current trials that are enrolling are the GLEAM and Glimmer studies, which are evaluating KSI 301 head-to-head with a Flibercept for diabetic macular edema. The BEACON study is the retinal vein occlusion pivotal trial comparing KSI 301 to a Flibercept, and that is enrolling. And in the near future, there will be a study looking at non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy and KSI 301 called the GLOW study. This is a very promising to see so much action uh, here in across all these uh, highly prevalent retinal vascular diseases. Let's move over to Dr. Regillo, who presented an update on the phase three archway trial for wet AMD. Carl, give us an overview of the study and its findings. Sure, happy to. Um, so the archway trial, it's a phase three study assessing the safety and efficacy of the port delivery system with ranibizumab, also known as PDS, for the treatment of neovascular AMD. So a lot of data is now coming out of the study because at angiogenesis, I presented for the first time, longer term follow-up. Up till now, we've heard only the primary endpoint analysis, which goes up to week 40. Here, I present about a year and a half, almost 18 months. And um, here's basically the take-home points. Um, at the primary endpoint, which is um, uh, BCVA up to weeks 3640, uh, PDS dosed every 24 weeks was non-inferior and equivalent to monthly gold standard individual ranibizumab injections in terms of BCVA. That's the primary endpoint. The anatomical and functional benefits observed in PDS group remained through the entire 72-week follow-up timeframe. And so, in other words, 
um, over the extended time frame into uh, about a year and a half of the study, we have PDS performing as well as monthly injections over that entire time frame. And that's both anatomic and visual. And then um, when you look at the treatment burden, uh, monthly injection group had essentially five times as many treatments over that 18 month time frame. Uh, ended up being 20 injections or close to 20 injections versus um, just about four injections uh, or four treatments with the PDS group. That includes, of course, um, the initial fill, any refill exchanges or any supplements, which were very rare. And overall, when it comes to safety, uh, the PDS surgery device and drug combination continues to be well tolerated with a uh, generally favorable safety uh, risk benefit profile. Fantastic, Carl. I'll tell you, it's really striking. Not just five more injections, five times more injections in that ranibizumab monthly group than the port delivery. Talk to us about what port delivery is. Yeah, so port delivery, PDS, is actually um, a refillable reservoir implant um, that is surgically placed and is secured in the pars plana. It's without a suture. It just uh, secures itself into the pars plana and then covered with conjunctiva. The device eludes a customized or high concentration formulation of ranibizumab. Uh, it's initially filled in the OR when it's placed and then refilled in the office. And that's called a refill exchange procedure because what we're doing is using a specialized dual bore needle um, to actually withdraw the contents of the device as we inject the fresh drug. And tell us a bit more about this Archway study. Well, Archway phase three was different than the phase two ladder study because Archway, um, we had fixed refill exchanges every six months or 24 weeks. And this was head-to-head, one-to-one versus, again, that gold standard monthly intervitreal ranibizumab injections. Um, and the primary endpoint was um, uh, the mean BCVA change from baseline out to the average of 30 weeks, 36, 40, and then a two-year study, basically. So the final vision and outcomes assessed at week 96. So we're not quite there yet. Um, the, base, the patient demographics in this study, keep in mind what this study is. Um, we, are, we are enrolling patients that are in the maintenance phase of therapy. Uh, to be eligible, they, they had to have had a diagnosis of wet AMD within a nine-month time frame and a minimum of three injections over six months showing an anti-VEGF response. So effectively, these patients are through the induction phase. Uh, the maculas are more or less dried up to probably about as much as they're going to be. And then they're enrolled in the study. So this is maintenance phase therapy. And that's why in the trial, patients at baseline when they were enrolled had good mean BCVA of 2032 and already had a mean number of injections of five at the time of enrollment. Gotcha. So let's talk numbers. How different was the BCVA from baseline at the primary endpoint? Well, here's the great part. It, uh, you know, the primary analysis, again, mean change BCVA from baseline to weeks 3640. Um, for PDS, it was plus 0.2 letters for monthly plus 0.5 letters. We're talking about a difference of only 0.3 letters. So baseline, both arms were 2032 mean BCBA. And at the primary endpoint, it's exactly the same, 2032. In fact, 80% of patients were 2040 or better in both arms. And uh, PDS was not only non-inferior, but when you're talking about such a small marginal difference, 
was actually shown statistically to be equivalent to monthly injections. And what we have is, of course, every 24 weeks, you get the refill exchange fixed in the PDS arm. So we have data now out through one, two, and for 80% of patients, out through three refill exchanges. And the visual acuity is looking essentially identical from the primary endpoint all the way out uh, through about 18 months now. This is Diana. I wanted to ask you a question about anatomy versus visual function. We always have debates on this. Did the anatomy match the visual acuity benefits in the PDS? Yeah, indeed, uh, it matched very well. Um, so we looked at uh, OCT change from baseline, uh, means center point thickness uh, from baseline out to all those same endpoints, weeks 24, 48, 40, 48, and 72. And they were very, very similar. Actually, I have to say almost every month, um, we're talking about within five microns of each other. You know, this really has potential to be a game changer for those frequent flyers in our clinic, the patients we see every month that we just can't extend out. Do you agree, Carl? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is true sustained delivery here. We're getting uh, reliably six months of, of good drug levels, good exudative control, and good maintenance of vision in the, in the maintenance phase of therapy here uh, with very few treatments. Uh, keep in mind that PDS arm, we had uh, the, initial re the initial fill of the device at the OR, and then the refills every 24 weeks. When the first refill exchanged, 98% of patients did not require any supplemental injections in the PDS group. And now through the second exchange, it's up around 95% not requiring any supplemental treatments. So I, I really do think this is the, the first true sustained delivery um, that's now uh, proven at the phase three level. So Carl, were there any safety issues in the Archway study? Yeah, you know, it's very important that we do talk about safety because it's very different. You know, we're used to uh, a very, very good safety profile with a given intravitreal injection. Uh, we have to think about the long run, the cumulative um, aspect of treating wet AMD with our monthly injections. Again, patients do very well if they're getting injections every four to eight weeks. We know that and ophthalmitis rates are low and so forth. This is a device, it's surgically implanted. And so there's gonna be some unique side effects, uh, some adverse events that we have to consider, manage appropriately and keep to a minimum. Uh, what I can say up front is um, the safety profile of PDS now in the Archway study with data through 18 months, safety data through 18 months, is that it's still looking very favorable. Um, in general, we're going to say this is well tolerated. Uh, what I can say, which is very, which is very encouraging, is that most of the significant ocular adverse events, we call them adverse events of special interest with the PDS arm, things like endophthalmitis, conjunctival erosion issues. Um, vitreous hemorrhage, most of it occurred actually in the first um, 40 weeks that up to the primary analysis. Now that we have an additional 38 plus weeks of follow-up, we're seeing very few new events. That's really, really encouraging. So the overall rates of vitreous hemorrhage, conjunctival issues, uh, which are in, often interrelated, uh, vitreous hemorrhage and so forth, were actually about the same overall in the study as they were at the primary endpoint analysis. There's one exception we had a couple of new uh, implant device dislocation, I should say, device dislocation that occurred. Um, up to the primary endpoint, we had one dislocation event that occurred in Archway. We've had two more since uh, from the latest data cut in September, 2020. 
So what does that mean? Well, an analysis was done looking at these uh, dislocation events and because we saw a couple of others um, with some of the um, extension trials from ladder. So what's happening here? Well, an analysis was done to figure out what's going on and what are the risk factors. And what we found was um, these events were mainly occurring at the time of the refill exchange. So that's why we tended to see them later on in the course of, of these trials. And two, they were correlated with or a risk factor identified with surgical incision length that happens to be larger. Um, originally, the surgery protocol called for an incision size to be 3.5 to 3.7 millimeters. And we found that we were sort of pushing the envelope 3.7 or so um, in, the, in these cases in which the device is subsequently dislocated. So there was a protocol amendment, a, a surgical um, uh, update as of June 2020, in which we essentially mandated the incision to be more precise at 3.5 millimeters to, to mitigate uh, this dislocation risk. You know, there's so much on the horizon for wet AMD. And after the break, we're going to discuss what the future holds for our patients and for our clinics themselves. Welcome back to New Retina Radio's coverage of the Angiogenesis 2021 meeting. I'm John Kitchens here with doctors Diana Doe and Paul Regillo. So we just heard from both of them about their presentations, and it really sounds like the future for wet AMD therapy is bright. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about some of that future, but we have some of that future has just recently been presented at the angiogenesis uh, meeting, and probably the most prominent presentation of the, or the one pivotal phase three presentation there was regarding uh, ferisumab. Uh, Carl, let's start with you. What was your impression of the ferisumab data that was presented? Yeah, I, I, it was the big presentations. I'd say presentations because it was the phase three top line data for ferisumab and treating both wet AMD and DME, uh, the two three phase three, the two phase three programs. Uh, I have to say I was very impressed um, with both of them. Um, for wet AMD, the focus of our, our uh, discussion here, uh, that was the Tenaya Lucerne phase three studies. And it was the first time we we're hearing the data. Um, the drug looks to be very durable. Um, and I think this does set it apart from what we're currently using. Um, the results basically showed that ferisumab could be dosed 12 or more weeks in close to 80% of the patients. This is up through the first year, uh, the primary endpoint. And uh, about 45% of patients went every 16 weeks. So in this study, there was this flexible um, ferisumab arm and, um, and it showed to be fairly durable and of course met the non-inferior vision outcome compared to, to uh, on-label a flibercept dosed every eight weeks after the load. So that's impressive. I don't think our current drugs uh, come close to that in terms, in terms of exudative control. Now, Carl, let me ask you this. You just talked about the port delivery, which you presented on. Is ferisumab a direct competitor with port delivery? Um, yes and no. You know, I think I think there's always going to be patients that will prefer to get an office-based intravitreal injection, not necessarily go to the OR and have a device. What it might do is it might shrink the um, patient population of wet AMD that needs to get drug injections very frequently. Right? We're going to be shifting this durability distribution um, to to more durable, you know, less frequent injections. 
And um, so, yeah, if we have the majority of our patients going every 12 weeks or so, they may be maybe a little less inclined. But keep in mind, if you go back to latter phase two, um, there are patients that had the PDS device that didn't need a, a refill for 12 or 16, 18 months. So uh, you, you're just going to, I think patients are going to interpret um, data in different ways here, um, and uh, they're going to have different preferences. Diana, assuming Frisimab gets approved in the last part of this year, um, when do you anticipate KSI to be approved, um, pending no holdups with any phase threes or anything such as that? And will Frisimab be the top competitor at that point uh, for KSI 301? I think in terms of Frisimab, as Carl mentioned, the data is very promising with this new technology that's a bi-specific that inhibits both the ANG2 pathway and the VEGF pathway. I think the promising um, aspect also is KSI 301, which is in pivotal trials right now, their wet AMD DAZZLE study has completed enrollment and top line data from that clinical trial should be available sometime in 2022. So there may be more options for retina specialists to use in the clinic, which is great for patients. How is this going to affect the way we take care of patients? In other words, are, are, how are our clinics going to change and evolve with these new therapies? Are, are we suddenly going to use them as first-line therapies for all of our patients, seeing patients much less often? Where does this fit? I think change is always good, but sometimes it can be unpredictable. As you mentioned, right now, we're used to seeing patients almost every month because we know more VEGF suppression is better and we want to avoid under-treatment and poor visual acuity outcomes. The promise with these new, more durable agents is that we can treat our patients with fewer injections over a one year or two year period. And that might translate to better real world visual acuity outcomes. I think as retina specialists, um, we'll adapt to it and hopefully that'll allow us to see more new patients in our clinics rather than just return patients. What are your thoughts, Carl? Yeah, I was gonna, I, I, I'm glad you brought up real world outcomes because you're exactly right. You know, unfortunately, our current therapeutics have to be dosed relatively frequently, on average, about every eight weeks. Yeah, sure, some patients can can easily be maintained every 12 weeks, but not really that much beyond that on average. So what we get in practice is relative undertreatment because patients can't come in very frequently. There are things that hold them up and so forth. We all know this. We all see it. The data is out there. It's, you know, it's, it's very consistent. Uh, we don't get as many treatments in with our current agents to maintain the vision gains that we get up front. So we end up losing vision on average in our patients, even, even year one or two, uh, let alone years three or four. And I do think we talk about more durable therapies, sustained release, um, and so forth as being less burdensome. And that's definitely the case. But I think the real promise and the real upside uh, to these future longer acting anti-VEGF approaches or therapeutics is that we are going to be able to better maintain those vision gains and have better long-term vision outcomes for our patients. And Diana, not a lot of our, our doctors listening to the podcast may have experience with KSI 301. 
Can you describe what it's like to work with this uh, drug? In other words, what are the nuances between it and our traditional anti-VEGF therapy? KSI-301 is built on that unique antibody biopolymer conjugate platform. And because of its greater molecular weight, the substance is more viscous than our traditional anti-VEGF agents. Um, therefore, the scientists at Kodiak have used a thin wall 29 gauge needle uh, to deliver the intravitreal injection. The injection just takes a few seconds more than uh, what would typically be expected for intravitreal anti-VEGF therapy. But with the new technology of the thin wall needle, it allows for easy administration. And I think the benefit of potentially enhanced durability is the real benefit of this medication. And do patients experience anything different in ways of floaters or any visual changes at the time of administration? Fortunately, the ABC platform is optically clear and there have been no increased incidence of floaters or any other visual disturbances. So thankfully the safety profile remains excellent. Fantastic. Carl, I wanna dig a little bit more into the port here. Uh, specifically around the surgery. And you've been really instrumental in talking about this and, and discussing the surgery, teaching the surgeries. Uh, how difficult a surgery is this? Well, I'm glad we are talking about the surgery because it's evolved. Um, and we've learned a lot. There have been a lot of good learnings when you go way back. And I've been involved in the program uh, from the get-go uh, early on in phase two. So phase two ladder, you know, we, we made the first major modification, the surgical technique, which helped to tremendously reduce um, what was a big problem at the time, which was post-operative vitreous hemorrhaging. Um, that became a minor problem by the time we hit the phase three archway study. So we got that under control. We, we you know, photocoagulated the uvea through this, you know, through the scleral incision. And, and that was probably the, the big modification that helped there. Through ladder and archway, we learned a lot about uh, best practices with, with conjunctival closure in order to help minimize conjunctival retraction issues, which became evident uh, in both studies. And um, when you have erosion or retraction, of course, that is a setup for and a risk for endophthalmitis. So those two issues are interrelated. And we've learned a lot. And I think up till now, I think we're going forward surgically, we're going to be much, much uh, better at getting the conjunctiva to cover the unit, the device um, in a much better way and minimize those um, cases of infection. And then lastly, I mentioned the dislocation issue. Um, so while we, while we solved the vitreous hemorrhage problem, we left a little latitude with the surgical incision. Uh, I mentioned uh, 3.5 to 3.7 was how the protocol was written. Um, but uh, as we can see, there was maybe too much wiggle room there. Um, so the surgical amendment is such that it's now very precise at 3.5. So I want to emphasize or underscore the word precise because that's what this surgery is all about. Your question was, you know, the surgery is actually very straightforward. Um, some, some straightforward steps that any vitreoretinal surgeon can do. It doesn't take very long, but there's some precision aspect to this. Um, uh, wound creation, careful attention to tenons, conjunctival layers, enclosure, and so forth. Some aspects of surgical management, uh, we haven't been accustomed to necessarily paying a lot of attention to, we'll say, especially conjunctival closure. And the device is unique, of course. And so um, 
it, it's not a difficult surgery, but um, it does take a lot of attention to detail and precision. So, John, I know you've done the surgery. Um, what are your thoughts about all this? Yeah, Carl, first of all, I think you explained it great. Um, I think it's going to be a surgery that is not for everyone. Okay, I think a practice, a large practice like yours or ours, may pick out one or two surgeons. They're going to do the vast majority of this uh, surgery for their practice, just my opinion. Um, it's, it's a surgery that is really, truly about precision. It's about making sure that versus 3.5, you said 3.5 versus 3.7. It is a matter of a fraction of a millimeter. That is the difference between, you know, having to go back and re-suture these or not. Um, and then respecting and, and really handling tenons, which are things that maybe we don't teach as much anymore in fellowships. Um, and so I think it's a really exciting technology but I think it's a technology that is just so, um, so precise that it needs to be trained exquisitely well. There needs to be a real diligence for how you do this. And, uh, and I really think it's going to be something that there are going to be a, a handful of surgeons that will do these procedures and do them fairly routinely. Um, and, and then I think the practices will, within their own practice, funnel these patients in to those doctors. I don't know. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good thing to know how to do first and foremost. And depending on uh, patient demand, you might expand that. I think again, I think any vitreoretinal surgeon can easily learn this. Um, there's a good training program that's been established, um, and it is straightforward. Um, you you do them once in a while. I think you're going to be uh, very proficient at it. Um, so uh, I really will depend on I think. Um, how you uh, utilize it in your practice, whether you're gonna be doing them on a regular basis. And I can also say that I've, I've taken care of a couple of complications and exposed implant, a couple of implants that have had enlarged incisions, and it's all very manageable um, from, a, from a treatment standpoint. So we've had patients that have done really well with, with both of those aforementioned you know, problems. And the patients who are doing very well, and this is something I don't think you mentioned, but patients love it. I think it's what 98% of patients said that they would have it uh, again in their fellow eye if they were to do it over. What, what was that statistic, Carl? Yeah, uh, basically asked if, if you were to do it again, would you have it? And 98% said it. Yeah, uh, I agree. We had a very good experience in our center too, in both ladder and in archway and, and all the extension uh, programs um, with these trials. So yeah, patients do love it. And even if they're coming to the office, they frankly, we all know intravitreal injections are well tolerated, but frankly, pa patients get anxious and they prefer not to have the injection. It's the bottom line. So they like the fact that they're getting drug from a device and don't have to be uh, injected very frequently. So yeah, they like the device. It's, it's a very favorable concept. Have you had to explant the device? And if so, how does the sclera close? Does it easily you know, close with vicral sutures and remain closed? Um, I have not had to explant a device. Explants were very rare in the trial. And the uh, of those that were explanted, I do know those patients did well. Um, and it was a straightforward closure. John, you can weigh on this if you've done any. Um, I, I don't know any firsthand, uh, but I do know it's uh, very straightforward to close. For example, all the device dislocation cases of course, you did surgery to remove the device and close the wound. And uh, all those patients actually had good recovery, good visual recovery. Yeah, Carl, just anecdotally, I'll tell you my, uh, my one case that I had to repair uh, was actually one that we repaired and then the con conjunctiva recessed again. 
and we had to go back and repair it again. And ultimately we ended up taking that implant out. Patients done fine. They're still 2020 actually just exited the study, the latter study uh, today, in fact, and he has been fantastic and enthusiastic the whole way through, even though we had to take the implant out. And Diana, to your point, the conjunctiva or the sclera closed up very nicely. But I will tell you, much like an exposed scleral buckle, close these things right the first time. Really do your due diligence on tenons and conjunctiva with suturing uh, because you don't want to have to go back and re-suture them. You want to do it very thoroughly uh, the very first time. Well, great work, both of you. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your work. That's it for this episode of New Retina Radio's coverage of the 2021 angiogenesis meeting. Go back in your feeds to listen to coverage of some of the dry AMD talks from angiogenesis and stay tuned for our final episode, which will be coming soon.